And this is Scholastic Answers. I don't, I don't know how to rephrase the intro. I got so used to it. So I have a something unusual, a Saturday morning Q&A. My parents are driving up for Augustine's first birthday party. It's happening uh, tomorrow. His birthday is the 8th on the Nativity of Our Lady. So everybody remember to wish Augustine a happy birthday and to pray for him that day. And uh, so I will be relatively busy for the rest of the day. So I decided to sneak in a QA and a uh, while I could. So just drop questions in. You know the drill. Um, if if you're a member, YouTube member, there's a few of you, uh, you get Pride of Place, which is basically infinite uh, um, super chat glitch. And if you throw in a super chat, you also get Pride of Place because the, as you guys know, the comment section of the Q&A gets filled up very quickly. Let me see. Good morning. Morning, King. Sneak it, brah. Let's go. Hi. Hi. How's it going? And if nobody asks questions, I will just uh, talk about whatever I want. Which reminds me, look what I, look what I found. Finally, found Austin Woodbury's commentary on the first two questions of the Summa. And notice something familiar. This is almost the exact chart that Gary Lagrange uses in his, uh, in his commentary on Prima Pars when he goes over theological method and stuff. So really excited to read through this baby. It's uh, going to be really fun. It seems like he's very, uh, he basically just follows almost exactly what, what Lagrange, um, the way in which he comments. What I'm really excited about is, let's go all the way up. Boom, his introduction. I think it's going to be, because Woodbury, he wasn't as much of a theologian as, as Lagrange was, obviously. But Woodbury was a spectacular philosopher. He has just massive amounts of like five part uh, ostensive metaphysics and three part defensive metaphysics. And like he, he just have massive amounts of works on philosophy. So I'm really excited to uh, read his introduction to to the uh, to the Summa because it looks like he basically just follows exactly um, the uh, at least the outline that Lagrange uh, follows. So I'm really excited to, uh, to read this. But 
There you go. Um, is, is God, his existence, and his nature the best book on the five proofs? Uh, um, Woodbury, he has in his commentary, uh, he does have a really extensive section on uh, arguments for the existence of God. So if you want really technical works, uh, Woodbury's commentary uh, is, is really, really good. It's just like an entire book, which is just commenting on uh, that section in line with the with the traditions of the Thomas. So re really, really good. But uh, yeah, um, God is existence in his nature. That's actually Mercier, uh, his favorite uh, book in his, um, in, in Mercier. Uh, Mer I'm, I'm assuming it's pronounced Mercier. I, I don't know how a, a Belgian last name is, is pronounced, but in his theodicy, that's actually the book that he recommends on the topic, which is really interesting because that would have been, um, that he would, uh, I don't even know how he recommended it because that would have been a very uh, sort of quick um, transition because Mercier died in the end of the 1920s and when God his, um, wonder when that was actually written originally. Um, let me see. Oh, my parents just entered North Carolina. There you go. I'm not sure when he answered them. I mean, when he wrote this. It was translated in 1939. Yeah, it doesn't say when he read it, uh, wrote it. I'm assuming, I'm just assuming that it wasn't just added in by the translators, but it could possibly be. But either way, it's, it was very, very, very uh, highly regarded. But another, uh, for you out there, who are not willing to read a super duper massive two volume work on the proofs of the existence of God from Lagrange or from, uh, or just a just tank of a work from Woodbury, um, a good work on the existence of God. I actually have printed two of them and both are uh, more intro level, uh, something that most of you can understand. I'm gonna share my, my screen. First is going to be the god of philosophy. Uh, philosophy. He uh, gives a little bit more of a technical treatment uh, to the question, but it's uh, it, it's meant to be a simple representation of the history of argumentation on the existence of God and some of the philosophical principles that need to be uh, proved. So, in the following pages, I've attempted no more than to restate in simple language upon the old philosophical basis, the natural proofs by which the God's existence is demonstrated. Yeah, so it's actually really good. And then a second one, and this one's a really fun one. I really like Richard Clark's uh, The Existence of God, a dialogue, which is dialogue format, uh, really uh, trains you in the, in, in the, uh, the habit of being a apologist when it comes to the existence of God. So those two books together uh, should give you a good intro if you're not quite there for Lagrange's work. Yo, oh, Hassan's here. How's it going, Hassan? Is Hellenism a heresy? What do you mean by Hellenism? Because Hellenism is used in like 20 different senses. So I'm curious what you mean by that. What do you mean? Finally, I've had that for ages. 
Q-Monkey. Okay. Oh, there you go. This question. So I saw a sign that said, God's love is real. Seek the living Jesus, not the church. Could you explain why the church is necessary for salvation? Okay. That is a wonderful question. So there's a fundamental principle in Catholic theology that the soul is the form of the body. And this is going to influence the entirety of Catholic theology, thinking about the reason for the incarnation, the reason for the church, the reason for the sacraments. There is always, when it comes to God's working among men, it isn't going to be something which is merely an invisible and spiritual principle. Now, he could and he does sometimes work in that way. But in God's general and natural working amongst mankind, he uses a principle of incarnation or a certain embodied principle when it comes to the, the communication of spiritual graces. So when it comes to the collection and the collection of saints and the propagation of the gospel, it isn't going to be something which is invisible. It's going to be something which is uh, supremely visible and outward. So it's going to be uh, his body that is still working. He is currently our um, invisible head. And I use invisible because he is not uh, bodily present with us uh, currently, but he is uh, in himself, but he is bodily present to us currently in the church. So to deny the church is going to be to deny Christ. You can't deny the the body without denying the head and, and so on and so forth. And that gets uh, behind some of St. Paul's logic when it comes to uh, the mystical body of Christ, uh, the, the church as uh, that body to uh, Christ as her head. So I hope that that helps when it comes to answering this question. Okay, so. So is it true to say the empirical realities of bread and wine remain in existent, in existence? So not in existent as non-existent, but in existent. While the substantial aspects is the body and blood of Christ. Yes, that would be a true statement. And as long as... Um, by uh, this this relation you're you're giving, it's going to be a relation of something which is above and under, rather than a relationship of um, some sort of uh, substantial or accidental union between the two. So you have to make sure because the the substantial aspect is under the species or the uh, the sort of sensible and uh, outward um, thing of 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 bread. So any good articles slash books arguing uh, against the university of being not currently, I I'm still, I'm, I'm still really uh, looking because you'll get, you'll get statements uh, from, from Lagrange where he'll, he'll make some very interesting uh, statements of talking about a certain, um, a certain ra rather than speaking of a university, he speaks of a, a what does he say? He says, a, uh, a proportional uh, unity, which is found between uh, God and creatures. So I, I, I'm really uh, talking, talking with Gideon uh, occasionally will 
we'll have a spat about it. I'm really trying to think uh, through the issue. Um, so I haven't, I haven't found anything that is just like, boom, this is the text that I recommend on it. Favorite Greek church father. Oh, this is a good one. Easily St. Cyril of Alexandria. I love St. Cyril of Alexandria. Now, he, he was really the, I, I had a professor, a Protestant professor in undergrad who really loved St. Cyril of Alexandria. And he had us read St. Cyril of Alexandria. And I did uh, one of my first uh, academic papers going over St. Cyril of Alexandria's Christology. And that's actually um, one of the first posts on my blog. If you go way back, I think it might actually be the first as I wrote an article on St. Cyril of Alexandria. I absolutely love St. Cyril of Alexandria. Okay, so is Catholicism compatibilist or libertarian on free will, or is it up uh, to debate? Okay, this is uh, an interesting question because really the Catholic view on the matter doesn't fall neatly into a lot of these uh, categories that you're gonna you're gonna think about. So there's a there's a distinction which is given between the act of willing and the determination of the will. So the act of willing, think about it just as that motion of the will um, from, from potency, that is from potentially being able to move, to actuality, that is actually being able to move. So this motion from potency to act, this has to be from the, uh, from the first mover, that is from God. So there's a certain uh, promotion uh, is what the theologians call it, a certain promotion of the will, which is found in the general working of God, a certain influx of divine causality. Now, when it comes to the determination of the will, the determination of the will is going to be something which can be, in some senses, actually um, necessary and determined. And the sense which is usually given by the theologians is going to be in the beatific vision, because we have infinite good in front of us, we cannot possibly uh, choose anything else. Uh, we don't really have a, a freedom in the sense of being able to choose between uh, lesser goods. And then in the in, in another sense, we have freedom. Um, and that is in our general and normal cases when it comes to the determination uh, of our will towards a certain good. And this is in the case of certain lesser goods that are present in front of us. So whether you want to eat um, cake or uh, brownies for dessert, that is something where your will can determine between these two lesser goods. But you can't choose between, for example, uh, the beatific vision and sin, because there's a certain infinite good which is present uh, before you in the beatific vision, where your will necessarily tends towards that infinite good. But when it comes to general lesser goods, then your determination is free, or else you wouldn't uh, really have even the possibility of sin. So uh, yeah, I hope that hope that answers your question. And um, also, uh, if you're going to ask the the providence question, I will I will pull it up real quick in the summa. So it's going to be in the providence of God, which is I think twenty two. Yeah, twenty two. Okay, so oh no, it's uh, it's going to be nineteen. The will of God. Okay, there you go. Whether the will of God is always fulfilled, because that question almost always comes up next. 
is how the will is going to uh, will of God is going to relate to our will and whether um, in his decree of what we do, it comes to pass. Because really what, what we're talking uh, when, when I talk about the distinction between the motion of the will and the determination of the will, that's going to be something which is on really on the level of, of secondary causality, because we always have to uh, look back to um, God's uh, providential decree as something which which uh, is always going to come to pass, although in various different modes, it can come necessarily sometimes, which is going to be like physical laws. And then sometimes it comes about freely, like uh, it, when it comes to um, the human will, whose determination is free. So uh, whether the will of God is always fulfilled, on the contrary, it is said, God hath done all things whatsoever he would. I answer that the will of God must needs always be fulfilled in proof of which we must consider that since an effect is conformed to the agent according to its form, the rule is the same with active causes as with formal causes. The rule informs is this, that although a thing may fall short of any particular form, it cannot fall short of universal form. For though a thing may fail to be, for example, a man or a living being, yet it cannot fail to be a being. Hence, the same must happen. Um, connection request. Cancel. Um, hence, the same must happen in active causes. Sometimes may fall outside the order of any particular active cause, but not outside the order of the universal cause. Hence, which all particular causes are intended. And if any particular causes fails of its effect, this is because of the hindrance of some other particular cause, which is included in the order of the universal cause. Therefore, an effect cannot possibly escape the order of the universal cause. Even uh, in corporeal things, this is seen. For it may happen that a star is hindered from producing its effect. Yet whatever effect does result in corporeal things from this hindrance of the corporeal cause must be referred through intermediate causes to the universal influence of the first cause. So basically all St. Thomas is saying uh, in, in that passage, if you want me to just uh, summarize it, is that when it comes to things failing to come to pass, uh, when it comes to uh, our, our general working amongst one another, uh, in, in these particular cases, yes, that, that can happen. Is there, There's the willing of us may uh, not come to effect. But when you have a universal cause, which is the cause of all things, um, not just there's when there's nothing outside of the scope of uh, one's causality, and uh, there, there's there's no molecule in the galaxy which is outside of the causality of that thing, then no, uh, there there's not going to be uh, a failing to come to pass that occurs. So I hope that's helpful. Yes, exactly what Hassan said. Free will is in the nature of man, which is predestined to exist and predestined to operate. Yes, and I, I did I did forget also. Um, Yes, uh, Hassan is right. I, I talked about motion, but there's also uh, the actual existence of of the thing, which is going to be uh, through God as um, the first cause. And then uh, his, the motion is through God as first uh, mover. Uh, favorite resources on and responses to uh, Kantian objections to classical natural theology. Um, let me let me try to think. Because I can think of Protestant resources. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can't think of anything right now as a recommendation. 
Oh, it's an objection that the online orthobros use against Thomism. Dyer used to say in his old videos that Hellenism was condemned by the early church, but it's hard to find further information on that. Oh my gosh, that is that is such a cope. You know who one of uh who, who one of the best Hellenistic scholars of the uh really of the first 10 centuries, one of the best classical scholars. Anybody want to guess? Anybody want to guess? Photius. <laughs> Yeah, Photius, one of his most famous works is his like really long encyclopedia of classical works. Yeah, because he was um because he was a a court uh, scholar type guy um before he was um before he was a bishop. Was St. Augustine a defender of sola scriptura? No, he was not. He he was not. There. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, what they mean by Hellenism is the usage of Greek pre-Christian philosophy. Yeah, it's 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 really funny because that that is something which is very consistent when it comes to the Church Fathers is especially the usage of um, of Platonic uh, philosophy, well, kind of receiving Aristotle through Plato, although there's some clear misunderstandings uh, that happen, but generally in broad strokes, you'll get uh, you, you, yeah, you, you'll get a sort of synthesis that happens. Okay. Um, how do you respond to Prot Hughes's Calvin's argument for John three five not being water baptism, since John, John the Baptist says Christ will baptize baptize us in fire and the Holy Spirit. Water stands in for baptism. What do you mean? Let Let me look. Let me look. Because. John Calvin was a strong supporter of baptismal efficacy. <clears throat> I would be very surprised if um That, you're right. That is really weird that he doesn't interpret interpret that verse. Okay, so Chrysostom, with the greater part of expounders agree, makes the word water refer to baptism. The meaning would then be by baptism we enter the kingdom of God, because in baptism we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Hence arose the belief of the absolute necessity of baptism in order to hope of eternal life. But though we were to admit that Christ here speaks of baptism, yet we ought not to press his words so closely as to imagine that he can find salvation at the outward sign. But on the contrary, connects uh, the water with the spirit, because under that visible symbol, he attests and seals that newness of life which God alone produces in us by his spirit. It is true that by neglecting baptism, we are excluded from salvation. And in this sense, I acknowledge that it is necessary, but it is absurd to speak of the hope of salvation as consigned to the sign. So far as relates to this passage, I cannot bring myself to believe that Christ speaks of baptism, for it would have been inappropriate. There you go. Yeah. Um, interesting. So how would I how would I respond to that argument? Uh, I would I would just merely uh, deny the parody because it doesn't. Well, well certainly um, that 
the uh, that verse about uh, the baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit. It could refer to the Holy Spirit being fire. The majority of patristic interpreters actually, um, as St. Thomas notes in his commentary on that passage, does not take, do not take the, uh, the, the fire to be uh, the fire of the Holy Spirit, but the fire of judgment. So, yeah, um, I, I would, I would deny that uh, that is the case. I mean, not much really else that you can say about that. Okay, so I have in mind the more general objection that metaphysical principles may not be justifiably applied to objects of possible experience, uh, may only be justifiably applied to objects of possible experience, not to supersensational uh, entities. Yeah, this... Uh, so I'm assuming I'm assuming this is a concept objection that you're talking about. I kind of missed the context in the in the uh, live chat, but yeah, the reason the reason this is wrong is because when we use um, our our sensitive faculties in order to uh, gain some knowledge of a of a thing we have what's called the agent intellect, which is the light which enlightens all men that we may not uh, only know. The, um, the sensible phenomenon uh, phenomena of the thing, but we also may know the thing itself. And then in, in knowing the thing itself, we know being, and we are able to uh, abstract uh, from that through a logical deduction, um, certain uh, principles. So yeah, I, I mean, this really has to go back to, th this goes back to Kant's, um, Kant's weird epistemology and um, his denial of the agent intellect as a certain um, a certain principle, it, 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 it's 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 just uh, re really weird. Uh, if you deny the agent intellect, which is the uh, the sort sort of natural um, illuminative uh, form which uh, God gives us uh, in our intellect to be able to not only um, know certain um, individual uh, sensible qualities, but know the thing itself, then you really just ruin everything. The the agent intellect is so important. Okay, I'm only I'm only ten minutes behind right now in answering. Um, okay. Okay. Good. Great question. Where should a small brain like myself start with philosophy? Okay. Great question. So I always, everybody knows, huge, huge fan. Um. And I'm actually uh, writing right now a list of just all of um, the manuals I possibly can find. I'm like, I've, I've listed all of them. Now I'm really just uh, getting uh, links and stuff to kind of fill it out. And then I need to uh, finish typesetting like a few books. But um, the best, you know, actually, I'll just send the link to my whole uh, page right here. So if you go to my website, christianbwagner.com, and go to shop and then philosophy, Copen's brief textbooks, these, the best. So what you should do is you should start out with a brief textbook of logic, because as the, as the tradition is held, and I think it's a quote from Aristotle that I've uh, heard in a few places, is that logic really is um, 
the science of sciences is it uh, it, it helps you um, direct the action of your intellect in in order to uh, attain truth. So you always start with logic. The logic is kind of like the the prolegomena to to philosophy, and this it's like his brief textbook of logic is like 80 pages, really easy to read. Uh, the wife and I read through it um, because she wanted to learn a little bit. Uh, but it, it, brief textbook of logic is really simple. And then a uh, brief textbook of mental philosophy. So do not let uh, mental philosophy uh, put you off. This uh, mental philosophy just means basically everything else in philosophy. So this covers um, psychology, uh, metaphysics, um, cosmology, um, theodicy, uh, some some basic ethics uh, too. So it really covers um, covers everything else besides logic. And, and again, I think this is like maybe 120 pages. So really, uh, uh, you can re you can sit down and read each one of these books in maybe two to three hours. And it's something that you're supposed to uh, constantly go back to. It's meant for like high school students back in the I think 1910s, 1920s. But they are really, really good. So I'm going to send that uh, link down below for the philosophy uh, books that I've reprinted. Okay. And eventually, eventually what I'm going to do is I'm going to, like my, my, my final goal, I've been thinking about this like every day, is to just kind of um, prepare some, sorry, my mom's texting me. To, to prepare some like short tracks on each one of the philosophical loci. That's just meant for people that want to learn theology. So a lot of the extraneous um, sort of debates that are found in uh, philosophy proper, um, obviously you need to know some of them, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of the debates are pretty extraneous. A lot of the topics they cover, they cover a little bit too heavily um, for somebody who, who uh, wants to know philosophy for theology. So, um, yeah, eventually that's that's the goal and then kind of have like a series of of lectures on each one of the loci. And uh, that, that's also really helpful because when you're writing theology and you uh, use a an article of reason, you can kind of just uh, refer somebody back to the book and be like, OK, if you want the explanation and proof of that, just go back to this book in this section of that book. And, you know, you're the one that wrote it. So I, I think that would be really helpful. That's that's like an eventual thing. Okay. Good question. So what's the difference between the virtue of charity and sanctifying grace? So there were some theologians, and you'll get this in almost any uh, uh, tract on grace. There were some theologians, I think, um, if it, it might be slipping my mind, but I think it, following uh, Suarez, like he was <clears throat> he was kind of a huge exponent of this, who identified uh, sanctifying grace with the virtue of, of charity. Now, um, I do not agree with this because when it comes to uh, sanctifying grace, sanctifying grace is a certain super added form as St. Thomas describes this the, the entire time. There's, there's a certain super added form, which is uh, above our natural faculties. Um, it, it's uh, although the, what's called the principium quode, the principle uh, which acts, which is gonna be the will and the intellect remain the same. The principium, uh, principium quo, the principle by which um, the the intellective will act, are elevated. 
So naturally, we have the natural uh, intellectual light, uh, which I described earlier, the, the agent intellect by which we uh, know certain things. But with sanctifying grace, our faculties are given a, a super added form above the exigencies of all created nature, both angelic and human. So we're raised to a new level uh, to be able to know, um, know as God knows himself and to be able to love as God loves himself, a certain creative participation in that. So why would it be a problem to identify these uh, this superadded form above the exigencies, uh, exigencies of our nature with charity? Well, uh, the issue is that charity is found principally in the will. Um, supernatural charity is a certain love of God uh, for his own sake as uh, one's beatifying object. But uh, there is also a, a second faculty, which is the intellect. And the, the intellect also need, needs to be raised uh, by a certain superadded uh, form, a certain, uh, a certain inherent um, uh, habit, which is that of faith. And eventually faith gives way to uh, the beat of vision. But you can't identify uh, sanctifying grace with charity because it's uh, found in only one of our faculty, uh, faculties, that is our, our rational appetite and not uh, in both of our faculties. So it would uh, lead to a bit of an absurdity. So that, that's that's my uh, general issue with it. Okay, so. <clears throat> what would be the faith of non-Christians like Muslims or uh, Mormons be considered? Is it like the uh, Protestant notion of historical faith? And again, this is this is going to bring us back always to the uh, the principle, the Catholic principle of the absolute supernaturality of grace and the distinction between uh, nature and grace, because we can speak of a certain human faith. So I have faith, for example, in this chair I'm sitting on that it will not fall. Faith in in that sense is a is it's a mixed it's a mixed virtue in this in the sense we usually use it it uh, involves both a knowing and a and a trusting both an act of the intellect and will um so in that sense it could be a certain mixed or formed uh virtue but again it's something which is merely natural so natural man can through abstractive knowledge not intuitive knowledge through abstractive knowledge uh know the existence of god as is said in psalm 19 and romans 1. So since they can have this sort of abstractive knowledge of God, they can also have a certain um, trust in God, the sort of uh, trust that the pagans have, as uh, St. Paul, I think it's St. Paul uh, describes this explicitly, that there's a certain uh, trusting in the unknown God that's found um, when uh, they trust God. Uh, God for the rain uh, that they get or for the certain uh, natural providence that God gives. But this isn't a faith in God as um, and, a, and a love of God, a certain trust of God that is found uh, with God as beatifying object, which is the supremely supernatural uh, virtue of uh, formed faith that is not found in the pagans. But we can speak of a certain natural uh, faith that is... Um, that is found. So yes, as Hassan says, it is an erroneous, merely human probabilistic trust. It's something which is abstractive and not intuitive. Uh, God as the object of a um, God, God is the uh, object as creator and not necessarily as beatifying object. 
what happened to your Craigstall powerful uh, icon? What what did happen to it? Wait, what? Okay, you're right. Where did it go? My wife put it on my desk or something. I'll have to ask her. You're right. I have no idea where that is. Maybe she hung it up somewhere else. I remember. I remember seeing it. Like, okay, this is kind of weird. Is, was it in my video yesterday? Well, we're gonna we're gonna find the exact date that it that it disappeared. Okay, this is this is kind of weird. I'm just gonna look for it for a second. I promise, guys. I promise I won't go on a schizo sort of uh, schizo motion. And okay, yeah, you have to look at the last live stream that I actually did. Okay, so this one I did um, September first. Okay. September 1st. Oh, oh, I, I'm literally an idiot. I'm so dumb. I'm so stupid. That's where it is. I, I don't even know why you guys watch me. I'm, I'm like literally an idiot. I couldn't, I can't even like conceive of how stupid that was. I'm a mod. Yes. Okay, question, difference between rational and sensitive soul. Okay, so there's going to be, um, since we are rational animals, there are certain faculties which are related to corporeal things. That is, certain faculties which are related to, to matter. Uh, think of it broadly as matter. And then certain faculties which are related to form. Uh, that is a certain uh, spiritual aspects of, of things. So with our... Um, with our rational faculties, those are uh, are, um, are the spiritual uh, faculties that we have. Uh, so it's going to be uh, the relation of our intellect to being, really, our, our relation to being. So when it comes to uh, our intellect's relation to being, which is truth, and then our will's relation to being, which is which is goodness. So that, that's going to be uh, our rational uh, faculties. Now, our sensitive faculties are related to certain uh, corporeal things. So it's going to be our relation to uh, accidental qualities because there are animals who can relate to accidental qualities, <clears throat> but they cannot from this uh, discern form. They can only uh, really uh, discern the accidents of a thing. So they can't really know uh, uh, hoarseness in itself. But we can know hoarseness in itself. They could only know a uh, horse. Um, so yeah, that, that's the, that's the distinction between the rational and then the, the, the sensitive. Uh, I will rephrase my question. Do Catholics reject determinism? Well, it depends on what you mean by determinism. A lot of these um, phrases are used in equivocal senses. The fact that God determines uh, all things by his will. Well, yeah. The fact that there is a certain um, physical necessity which is placed upon all things, no. Some things are decreed after the mode of contingency. Some things are decreed after the mode of freedom. Uh, so, so it depends on what how, how you're asking that question. I find in a lot of these debates that there's a lot of terms 
thrown around, but there's not much um, reflection upon what we mean by those terms and how they relate to the truth. <clears throat> okay, this is a good question. I wasn't able to feel God for a year, even though I was still going to mass and confession. Was there a reason for this? Like chastisements. Okay, I'm going to recommend a book. This is actually uh, from one of my definite professors. It should be helpful. Uh, it's called Enduring Divine Absence. Uh, promise I can spell. Um, so it's a really short book. It's like really short book it's like 80 pages should be helpful um awesome really good book and um it's not necessarily a so I'll, I'll, i guess i'll just give my answer here now after i sent the book um, but it's not necessarily a chastisement to not be able to feel God. Uh, when it comes to the writings of St. John of the Cross, you get this very strong, very, very strong um, reflection uh, on divine absence that's found in St. John of the Cross. And he'll describe it in his um, his flame. I, I always get the name wrong, but flame of fire of love, something, something like that. But it's one of his minor treatises, and I think it's really helpful the way he talks about it, is that when it comes to the stages of the spiritual life, you have the entering of the spirit as fire um, into the soul. It's going to be like the effect of uh, fire on a log. You may have a log which has bark, uh, and it might be a little, um, the, the log might be wet. It might have been sitting outside. Now, what is that fire uh, act upon the log at first while well, it burns away the bark and this this process of purgation it might be something which is painful it may involve a lot of divine absence but it is the the means whereby uh, we reach a higher state of the spiritual life it is in enduring um, the times in which god uh, does not feel present those are the times in which spiritual growth is done that is the the purgative way of those being made perfect as it's uh, often described in spiritual writers. So uh, it, it's not a chastisement. Um, well, uh, it may be a chastisement, but usually not a chastisement. It's actually a means whereby we grow in the spiritual life. And it's something which is good. And it's to be, um, and it's to be endured uh, manfully for the, for the growth in the virtues. Can you respond to the argument that the Eucharist is cannibalism? Um, it, it, it's not cannibalism because cannibalism is typically, um, defined as, um, the eating of a certain, um, dimensive quantity of, of human flesh. It's like the, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not even, it's not even a, a good argument because when we generally think of cannibalism, it's going to be like you have just a uh, just a, hunk, a, a great I'm going to be like demonetized in this video or something. But it's just thinking about like just a hunk of flesh, which which you're which you're consuming, like it, like the the Eucharist just uh, is is not even within the same categories of thinking of, of cannibalism. It's, it's something which is completely um, 
it's a complete non sequitur to think about it because um, we usually think of cannibalism as the uh, receiving of certain accidents, which is uh, substantially flesh. <clears throat> now, when it comes to something which is not in that state, uh, it'd be really odd to even think about um, it as cannibalism. Okay, I'm going to save this question for another time, Christian. I'm going to highlight that. Okay, this is a good question. Since quantity and extension are positive attributes, not mere uh, limitations, do they reflect God in some sense? If so, how? Yes, and uh, that, that is in the sense of um, the ubiquity of God. Uh, and it, it can be thought of a um, supra, um, a, a supra extension, if, if you want to think, as something which is uh, so extensive that it uh, exceeds all limitations of extension, and so quantitative that it limits um, all all uh, qu quantity. So uh, when, we, when we think of the omnipresence of God, that would be the corresponding perfection to um, our our limits of quantity and extension. Uh, if, if that helps, it, it, it's something which is above um, the the mode of of um, created quantity and created extension. That's why it's described as being proportional uh, to it. Okay, I have the same one. Did you get it from Legacy Icons? I did. Uh, I don't know how I feel about giving Eastern Orthodox money since I'm Catholic. I don't know if that is sinful. Okay, so there's a, a good principle in moral theology, and I discussed this a little bit yesterday in my stream on self-defense. Um, so if you become a patron, uh, patreon.com slash militant Thomist, I do daily streams on weekdays uh, that are up and beyond. Uh, you can get a lot of cool uh, sort of benefits that I have on there. Uh, you can get a, even access to, uh, to, to a lot of stuff. So that's just a quick plug. But there's what's called the law of double effect is there might be a certain uh, remote, unintended consequence to your actions. And then there's a certain proximate, uh, intended, and uh, good consequence to your acts. It's not doing evil that good may about, uh, that good may come about. It's doing good, and there may have an evil uh, consequence to that. So the example is, uh, let's say you want to go to a coffee shop. And obviously, most coffee shops are really gay, really, really gay. So uh, when you buy coffee, you're probably, uh, at least in a remote uh, way, funding really gay stuff. Now, that's not your intended uh, consequence. It's something which is remote and un unintended. And there's going to be uh, certain laws which are, um, which are given to how we uh, discern whether something is um, too proximate. Um, too proximate when it comes to uh, our our action. And it's this is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Sorry, I had to pull it up real quick. Uh, and it says, in general, however, the following considerations will be of value in discerning whether it is an instant of material cooperation, the reason about is valid or not. The necessity for a more powerful reason is accentuated in proportion as there is a greater likelihood that the sin would not be committed without the act of material cooperation. 
So if you materially cooperate uh, with this uh, sin, we will the person still be able to do it? If uh, no, then you probably shouldn't do it. Second, a closer relationship between the two. So is there a, a very direct and close relationship between your action and then the uh, the sin which is coming about? So, for example, if you uh, if there's a fundraiser for uh, something which is gay and you give your money, that is something which is a direct uh, instance versus if you happen to buy a coffee and then that uh, that very um, remotely uh, influences. So uh, third, a greater heinousness in the sin, equally in regard to harm done either to the common well wheel or some unoffending third party. So is there some sort of is there some sort of very grave sin which is coming about? So uh, if, if it's going to be something where um, it results in murder, it's going to be something where uh, different than if it results in some um, uh, sort of uh, very uh, trifling uh, effect. And give me one second. Okay, I'm back. Sorry about that. So, uh, I barely, I have like 10 minutes and I have a lot of, a lot of questions. So I'm going to quick star all the ones. Um, <laughs> why do people keep asking you questions about historical theology when you have insisted many times that you are a dogmatician? <laughs> I have I have no idea. People people are really interested in that. Um, okay, uh, this is a quick one I can answer. Animals can only conceive phantasms, whereas humans can grasp essences. Correct? Yes, that is correct. So there's a distinction which is made when it comes to our mode of intellection between simple apprehension, which is a certain idea in itself, so the idea of triangularity. And then phantasm, which would be like uh, conceiving of a triangle with uh, this long of that side, this color, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas uh, the phantasms of people uh, differ uh, from person to person, the uh, simple apprehension is universal since it's the idea in itself. Uh, every every uh, rational being is going to conceive of the simple apprehension in the same exact way. So uh, with animals, since they do not have uh, rational faculties, but only sensitive faculties, and, and rational in the proper sense, um, then animals are not able to have simple apprehensions, but they can only uh, have uh, certain phantasms of certain individual uh, truths kind of conglomerated uh, together. Okay. Um, 
uh, how long did it take you to become competent in philosophy? Uh, not long enough. I don't. Th- I still don't think I'm competent. It's a, it's really a uh, it, it's a growing uh, sort of uh, progress because nobody's ever finished when it comes to the philosophical life. Yeah. Uh, getting getting the general terms and concepts down, and then uh, I think the most important part is then reading works uh, like the Summa, which use these concepts. In, uh, in in different circumstances, and being able to see how these concepts interact with um, with, with various different uh, individual cases, I think that's very uh, very helpful, and how, how they fit into arguments too. Um, but but yeah, it it it's uh, de- definitely I'm not as competent as I should be. <laughs> Why did you abandon the mega based Giga Chad traditionalist militant Thomas for the neo modernist hippie Protestant cat boy? Scholastic answers. Um, I I just thought uh, thought I should uh, distinguish between myself and then um, my apostolate. And militant Thomas is kind of just a, kind of a personal term. I I mean I still go by it and everything. Um, and like my Patreon is still named militant Thomas because uh, kind of a personal thing. Um, but yeah, when it comes to uh, the apostolate in general, I thought I figured I'd separate the two. So that's all. I like militant Thomas better. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people said that. A lot of people also thought it was uh, thought I should uh, probably change. But yeah, even, I, I don't I don't understand why people get so caught up on the word militant um, because there there's uh, militant Catholicism was a very uh, common phrase to use especially in the early 20th century when I talked about the spiritual life against modernity, uh, militant Catholics. And I've even seen usages such as in Father John Rickaby uh, in his first principles of knowledge, he'll use the term militant scholasticism. Um, so militant Thomas really isn't uh, something which is out, out of left, left field. Um, and I, I'll still proudly go by militant Thomas. It's just uh, I, I thought the apostolate name should change. Um, so that is, uh, if God wills all to be saved and he can save everyone, why are some damned? Well, some are damned because, uh, when it comes to the uh, major premise, uh, if God wills all to be saved, uh, we would distinguish uh, God wills all to be saved antecedently. That is before the consideration of um, of the universal goodness of creation. Uh, that would be something which is uh, which is conceded where it be denied that God wills um, efficaciously and consequently. That is after the consideration of uh, formal and universal good um, that they would be saved. So. Uh, yeah, we would need to distinguish the major premise. Uh, that that is that is why uh, some are damned, and then free will defense won't work because God moves our free will, so it's still God. And that also assumes that uh, the divine causality uh, can't use certain secondary uh, means uh, and can't decree things to happen uh, freely, which He does. And it also um, also assumes that when it comes that that God is. Uh, determining necessarily the determination of our will when it's really only the uh, causality creation and uh, motion of our wills that we uh, speak of uh, God determining. Uh, Does God then damn people? Yes. Uh, You are not a Christian if you don't think God damns people. Of course he does. 
Um, If Mary said no in the Annunciation, what would have then happened? Would another substitute take her place or what? Well, she wouldn't have. Oh, my gosh. Christian, you're asking, like, a lot of really good questions. But I'm trying to uh, – maybe, maybe I'll do, just do one stream where I just, like, answer all of your questions. Um. How do you read so many books? A uh, voice stream reader. Debate Diamond Bros. Will do. Okay. Um, I have starred a lot of questions, so I will answer one of them. Um, okay. So which one should I answer? Or if anybody throws in a really good one last minute. Um, I do not answer only one question per person. I promise. Okay, so you're since since you uh since you double double tap me on this one, I guess I'll answer it. Some medievals admit animals can have general intentions or desire things in general, which isn't the same as intending the universal essence of a thing. Kind of like desiring wine in general, but not whiteness universally. What do you think? Others say animals can even have the form, but only connected to matter, not the separated. Yeah, um, animals animals can still um, desire desire the because when when it comes to the individual instantiation of things, um, there there is a certain likeness which is found in each one of those individual instantiations, obviously. So um, let's say the dog um, will uh, desire uh, a bowl of dog food. Now, if you have a second bowl of dog food next to it, um, there it's going to kind of uh, resonate, uh, use that language of resonating with the phantasm that they have of that bowl of dog food. And uh, due, to, due to the likeness, um, even though they're two separate individuals, um, they're, they're, uh, they're, the animal can still um, desire it in, in general, if, if that makes sense, because there's the resonation of phantasms in the relation um, in, in the likeness of the phantasm with, with the thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a certain abstracted uh, form of the universal thing in itself, if that makes uh, sense. Okay, and I guess I'll answer this one too. Tiago uh, wasn't uh, predestination anta provisa uh, merita? If God wills some to be damned, consequently, that means that he considers their demerits, right? Actually, uh, so there's a distinction that St. Thomas makes, and this is one that I bring up um, pretty often. This is going to be the last question I can answer. Um, so whether God reprobates any man, uh, tw uh, 23, 3, and this last sentence in the in the respondeo is very uh, important. And sorry for all the questions I didn't answer. 
I should do more Q&As. You guys always have a lot of questions. So I answer that God does reprobate some, for it was said above that predestination is a part of providence. To providence, however, belongs to permit certain defects and things which are subject to providence, as was said above. Okay. Obviously, there's certain def defects in particulars that bring about the universal good. Uh, yeah, we already covered that. And uh, that is that is why um, there's the distinction uh, that we think of between antecedent and consequent. So um, the distinction is um, found uh, it's virtual and not uh, real, if I'm mad. So thus, as men are ordained to eternal life through the providence of God is likewise uh, part of that providence to permit some to fall from that end. This is called reprobation. OK, there we go. Still easy, still good. Thus, as predestination is a part of providence in regard to those ordained to eternal salvation, so reprobation is a part of providence in regard to those who turn aside from that end. So pre, uh, predestination and reprobation are both species of um, providence. It's just the relation is different. The relation of one is to those damned. The relation of the other is to those who are saved. Okay, good. Easy. We got it. Hence, reprobation implies not only foreknowledge, Notice, not only foreknowledge, because providence is not only foreknowledge, but also something more, as does providence, as was said above. And then this is going to be the killer right here. This is going to kind of be the key to thinking through all of these issues. Therefore, as predestination includes the will to confer grace and glory, grace, those means uh, whereby we re uh, reach glory, which is the end. So also, so there's going to be a certain analogy, which is between the two. So also reprobation includes the will to permit a person to fall into sin and to oppose punishment of damnation on account of that sin. Super, super important. There's going to be the uh, distinction between uh, permitting in kalpam versus pro kalpa. So the first one, the permitting of a person to fall into sin, this is something which in mode is negative. So it's going to be something which uh, is, is a negative act of permission on the part of God. But there's not going to be the foundation of sin for this. So God does not reprobate on account of sin. He does not reprobate on account of sin. Because there's no sin which is existing in the person. So this is pretty obvious. Because reprobation is going to be that permission to fall into sin. So how can you do that on account of sin? It doesn't make any sense. But there's going to be a positive aspect called uh, predemnatio, which is uh, which is used among some of the theologians. And this is going to be uh, logically after the permission to fall into sin. So God has the reprobation permitting a person to fall into sin, which is going to be as uh, in, in predestination. There's going to be uh, the positive movement of grace. And then there's going to be on account of that sin, which he has permitted that they fall into. There's going to be the positive act of damnation, which is reaching the final end. So uh, reprobation has to do with the means. Uh, Predemnation, predemnatio has to do with the uh, the end of it, which is going to be uh, not into sin, but on account of sin. So the previous, um, not on the basis of sin, the latter is on the basis of sin. Okay, uh, another yes, uh, Christian. I will I will answer uh, your questions another time. Okay, so your question on, which question was it on? Uh, matter and identity. Um, which one on matter and identity? I know I started. 
Uh, I think it's ah, just just message it to me. Okay. So thank you everybody for stopping by and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.